Hi, everyone, and welcome to the third season of Truck About Presents. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard. What was that? I don't know. I, 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 I did. I, it looked like you were getting having me say something. You don't have to say anything. You okay, can just sit there. Well, welcome to the third season of Trek About Presents, which would actually be very appropriate because uh, Wally in My Dinner with Andre, which is the movie we're talking about in this first episode of season three of Trek About Presents, uh, basically just sits there for the first half of the movie, not saying much. I thought that was in, yeah. I was gonna say the first part of it is essentially a monologue where you know Sean's dialogue is just kind of punctuating and you know. Shifting, you know, the gears of the conversation, he certainly has an effect on, you know, the conversation, but not really much of one. And he's, you know, but anyway. Which is obviously a very deliberate choice on the movie's part because it's really set up as two halves. But, you know, we're getting maybe, right into talking we're about Maybe getting this, a little ahead we? of ourselves. Uh, yeah, we, we chose my dinner with Andre uh, primarily because, you know, we, we don't want to get locked into doing sci fi. And My Dinner with Andre is one of those movies that I really lock into every time I see it. It's one of my favorite movies. It's also a movie that has a reputation that I think is undeserved because a lot of people have never seen it. A lot of people have never even heard of it. And if anybody knows about it, if you're not a film person or if you're not a person that you know watches these types of movies, uh, as Richard isn't, this is his first time seeing this movie, um, you really only know it through through things like perhaps uh, you know they used to do jokes about it on on The Simpsons. There's there one where he's playing a video game, you know, and it's like you know, oh, when he retorted, you know, yeah. he Bond Mott. Uh, there there was an episode of of Community which I don't watch because I don't really like Dan Harmon. Um, oh! so that was a uh, a take off of this kind of a, a parody, uh, satirical, you know, kind of an homage to it. I mean, it was lovingly done. I didn't see it, but I'm assuming it was. And I seem to remember. Um... Uh, isn't at the end of Waiting for Guffman where they have like the My Dinner with Andre action figures or something like that. Um, yeah. See, uh, so, so for me, this is not a movie I've ever seen. This has kind of been, you know, a, a bit of a running joke between Eric and me over the past, you know, decade of our friendship when we first met. You know, Eric mentioned that it was, oh, one of my favorite movies. And he said, oh, I'd never seen it. Oh, we should watch it, you know. And so, you know, we just began to joke like, oh, God, we got to watch my dinner with Andre now. So, um, you know, I it's been interesting to finally see it. So, you know, I will say this is a movie that has had in its way a lot of expectation built up for me. Is it what you expected it was? Pretty much, yes. The um, While I didn't really quite you know, know all of the content of it. I knew the movie as it's essentially a filmed conversation between, you know, Walshon and, you know, another man. And they're talking about, you know, philosophy, art, and all of those kind of things. It never leaves the restaurant. It, you know, entirely, it, for the most part, focuses on the two of them, and that's the movie. And that, for the most part, is exactly what the movie is. I mean, I, I what I had pictured in my head was pretty much what I got. Okay. All right. In a good way, I would say. No, I mean, the thing about my dinner with Andre is, you know, I mean, it's not a hard movie to describe, at least in its own way. It's not. I mean, describing the movie doesn't really do service to sort of the flavor and the feeling of watching the movie. And no, of course, but that's true for for a lot of movies. I think that my my dinner with Andre is is a really intriguing movie for me because it does really speak to. Uh, it, it's it's a very theatrical movie in its way. It's it's very dialogue heavy. Um, that's primarily what's happening the whole time, uh, aside from you know yeah. the, the beginning and the end where uh, uh, you know well, we should talk about. I mean, Wallace Shawn and and Andre Gregory uh, are two. You know, they're they're not famous necessarily. Well, I think I think Wallace Shawn is more famous than than Andre Gregory certainly. And that was going to be my question. Now I I did do a little bit of looking up, and apparently. You know, he he says the word inconceivable at one point in this, and the casting director of Princess Bride was starting to cast this, saw this movie, and, you know, you know, since that's such an important word in that movie, cast him there. And that's kind of where he became much more well-known to people outside of a filmy, theatery audience. Um, Yes. But— well, Wallace Shawn is very. I mean, I don't know that much about theater. I'm not a theater goer. I've yeah. I've, I've seen plays and I've read them, but I, I don't primarily. Can, that's not one of my primary, uh, you know, art forms yeah. that I really know a lot about and appreciate. And um, you lived in New York for a decade, so you I, would have had plenty of opportunities. I would, yeah, I would have had plenty of opportunities too. And and so you know, uh, he's very uh, in theater circles. Wallace Shawn, as I understand it, is. 
you know, very well known for writing very challenging sort of experimental plays. And Andre Gregory is obviously a, a theater director. He's not a, a theater. Uh, he's not a film. He's not a playwright. But they work together quite a bit. They actually they've made three movies over 30 years. And, uh, you know, the other one that they're, they're probably most famous for is uh, Vanya on 42nd Street, which is a um, filmed uh, 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 oh. adaptation of the uh, uh, Chekhov Uncle, Uncle Vanya play. I, I've never seen it, but I... It's also very good. Yeah. And, and I didn't know they... I've heard of that movie, but I didn't realize that was them. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And they also collaborated. Uh, Louis Mal directed this movie, the famous French director who directed other things like Au Revoir, Les Enfants, and, you know, things like that. So, and we'll talk about the direction. I think this is going to be... Mm. One of those movies that that we cover that I'm going to talk quite a bit about um, in terms of of the directing style and and sort of the the mise en scène and all that kind of stuff and so you know lock in for some very pretentious conversation but you know it, <laughs> usually they're making fun of me for making up words like bathos or whatever but you know now now we get to do you know that now you get to be that guy mise en scène is a real thing uh, I know I used to work in in a restaurant. <laughs> But so, you know, the, the genesis of this movie was really that, that they kind of wanted to work together and they actually did kind of um, record their conversations over a period of time. And, and Wallace Shawn actually worked those into a script. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think one of the, the misconceptions of My Dinner with Andre is that this was improvised and it was very much not improvised. It was, it was very, very written to the word. You know, I didn't know to what degree it was improvised. Like, I obviously, I mean, it's obvious watching this that this is a very choreographed conversation to the degree that, like, this subject and this story and this, you know, everything is arranged very particularly. Um, yeah, it's yeah. not just a freewheeling conversation, but I didn't know if it was just done to a very strict outline or done to a script. But, you know, listening to the actual dialogue, it is in its way very scripted, I would say. It's extremely scripted. I don't think they did any improvisation at all. And, uh, you know, part, partly that was because, I mean, it, it's funny because for as sort of effortless as the movie feels, it's very, very deliberately constructed. And the, you know, like I said when we first started talking about it, is that the movie really does have two halves. You have the first half, which is, you know, it's a Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory are playing versions of themselves in this movie. They're not really playing themselves. Yeah. They're sort of exaggerated comic versions. Because I think one of the other things about My Dinner with Andre that, that maybe a lot of people don't realize that have never seen it, because it does sound, frankly, like a pretentious art yeah. movie. Um, is that, but I really think that the movie is vital and important and it, it's really, you know, I think it speaks, we'll talk about, you know, philosophy at some point um, during this conversation, but it, it, you know, it really is deliberately constructed because you have the, the first half of the movie, which is basically Wallace Shawn just has no time for Andre Gregory's shit. And, you know, he's, he's struggling, you know, as, as he's going to the dinner, you know, it's bookended by. Uh, really the, the, I think what, what the movie is about, if you can say the movie is about anything is this idea of, and they don't say this, but they, it's really about mindfulness. It's really about that sort of Zen idea, that sort of Buddhist idea. And they both actually don't disagree as much as I think they do. No, but, uh, you know, the movie very deftly in the script, I mean, I should say the script very deftly grounds you and makes you identify with the character of Wally very early on in the film because Wally is the person that you're seeing in voice. You're seeing him going to the restaurant. You're, you're hearing him in voiceover talking about, you know, the, the difficulty of his life of what he does during the day. And what he does is frankly, not that interesting. You know, he's going and running errands and making Xeroxes and, you know, trying to pay the bills and hustle. And he doesn't want to go to dinner with this person. And the only reason he's going to dinner with this person is because, uh, a friend of his or an acquaintance of his ran into Andre on the street after he went to see a movie and he was crying, you know, on a building. Yeah, I mean, the it, it, it's not incidental that, I mean, yeah, Wallace is the, well, he has the focal character. I mean, given what we know about the two in the in the first five minutes together, Wally's, you know, has a shitty apartment in New York. He has a girlfriend. He works, you know, and stuff like that. It's very similar to our lives. What What is Andre doing? He's going to Poland and he's doing these weird experimental happenings type thing and and his life seems very bizarre and strange to probably the most of the audience of this movie yeah um, yeah i mean further on this the first half of the movie in particular gave the sense of you meet an old friend and you find out that they've become schizophrenic i mean this is the <laughs> yeah the, oh, very much um the conversation in the first half treads that line between 
you know, someone who's really artsy and somebody who is mentally ill. I mean, for example, the scene, you know, when he's talking about, you know, seeing this creature in the church, for example, is he speaking, you know. Which also has one of the great jokes of the movie, which is which is Wally desperately trying yeah. to find some sort of segue into this and talking about this movie called Something About Violets, where people were being strangled yeah. in submarines. But anyway. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it's the kind of story where, you know, I mean, his his story does, you know, hits mysticism, it hits psychedelia, it hits, but it also hits madness. It also hits, you know, yeah, you know, a, well, essentially, the, I think- the, yeah. The, the big question about Andre is there's points where he has broken through reality and seen something enlightenment, but he's also broken through reality into irrationality, into madness, and you know, I think the first half of the movie is largely, you know, while he's trying to sort out. Almost to the degree to which it's safe to be having this conversation with this person. I mean, not you know. I, I, well, he's he's asking him very banal questions to just kind of keep Andre yeah. talking. And you know, one of the things that I think is 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 you know really striking about the movie is how I mean, Andre Gregory is is a, is a great storyteller. Yeah. And, oh and yeah. You're, you're captivated when he talks. And, I mean, both of them really. I mean, oh he, yeah. Wally, you know, Wally takes a while to start telling stories, but he, the two of them are equally good but essentially what happens is as andre is telling these these increasingly bizarre stories about yeah you know he's he's going to poland and he's doing this thing called a beehive and you know they're they're constructing this elaborate uh, uh christening or, or something for him and it's you know he, he's talking about the theatrical nature of everything and you know how everything is linked and he goes to this place called findhorn in scotland and he's going to tibet and he's had you know and and he's just telling these increasingly bizarre stories about what his life is and being buried alive on Montauk and all these sort of things. Yeah. And uh, you and know, I'm sure that whole thing could be construed into a stages of life thing, maybe because it does begin with you know a baptism, which is as close to birth as possible, and ends with death and resurrection. I mean, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think that know. that's really true, and I think you kind of see that as the movie progresses as well. One of the things but, that I, I can see this movie, you know, with repeat watchings, and because. I didn't really get the structure of the of the of the story, but it's very clear there is one. But oh anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. But what you know, where I was going with that is 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 one of the things that's most striking about my dinner with Andre is you know, it's not a super visually interesting movie. You know, certainly, uh, well, you know, I, I do want to talk about the direction because it is very it is very intriguing and it is very very deliberate, but. Uh, you know, essentially what's happening is as Andre is telling these stories is that it's almost like a radio play. You know, yeah. you are seeing these things in your head as he's telling these stories. And so even if the actual movie itself uh, is not that visually interesting, one of the ways in which the direction and the choices that they're making yeah. in in the shots and in sort of the staging of the movie and, you know, really making it a very small world of of just Wally and Andre at this table. And every once in a while, you'll you'll see a shot of uh, uh, their waiter, like some sort of ghost, you know. Yeah, the... and it's it's it it's making uh, uh it's making you see things that that are just being described to you, and so it does make it a much more. I think not a. It does make it a much more visually interesting I movie. Would say in a that, sense. You know, to me, the because I tuned out a lot of the visuals as you were. I, it, it was this. It, it does very much give the sense of you know you're listening to a story from someone who's telling it very, and you're picturing it in your head. And yeah, you're, you're picturing. You're Poland. tuning out the word, but but then you know you'll hear something and you'll you know snap back and you know i thought a lot you know there were and a lot of the times they did it it was a very i mean i want to say almost lyrical movie i mean it wasn't you know i i i found the movie very lulling for a while um it is it is and it's i think it's it's you know explicitly designed to do that yeah and i would see you know i i would be i think it would be very interesting to be of the disposition and be able to analyze the you know kind of shots in that way and you know it's because it, I I, don't, I mean I can do it. Oh, I know, and <laughs> I I can't do it, and I can tell that yes, certain way the shots are sequenced is done to make it more transparent. So you are focusing on the words, and then well, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to get into a to a long just you know shot by shot breakdown of the movie because frankly I can't do that because you need to actually be having the movie on while you're yeah. doing that. But you know what, just as kind of a point of interest, and maybe to sort of um you know get you and maybe get the audience invested in this sort of criticism of movies is you know one of the striking things about about what Mal is doing with the camera here is 
uh, he he you know it's very uh, um, he very deliberately kind of um, uh, 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 judged the distance of the camera from the actors by the millimeter. I mean, this is kind of a filmmaking that is incredible. I mean, you know, if this was Kubrick or somebody, you would say that he was insane. And yeah. and, and Kubrick is also very famous for being extremely demanding and extremely controlling about his actors and his shot construction and all yeah. that stuff. But uh, and it's making me realize that maybe we should talk about Kubrick on a future <laughs> season of Truck About Presents. Hey, see, because but... I, I was gonna say I don't like Kubrick because I, you know I can tell what he does, but I don't like what he does. His movies but... are extremely cold. And yeah, I, I always feel very uncomfortable. They're designed to make you feel uncomfortable, oh, yeah. and they're designed to make you feel some distance from what's going on. But but anyway, but you know here here I mean this is definitely you're not feeling. There was certainly some point of distance with Andre, for example, through the you know first parts of it, but towards the later when they are starting to have more of interchanges, you know there is no distance. You know it is a this is a very intimate movie through the whole thing. I mean, this oh is, yeah, you are the third person at the table for the most part. But you don't you don't even notice when the camera's pulling in, for example, because you know the 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 first thing that always strikes me about the movie is you know. As Andre is telling the story, you know, especially during the Montauk story, which is kind of the the sort of capper or the end of the first half of the movie, and then he sort of talks about, you know, how we don't ever see the world and we're all just sort of living through the stream world, and that's when Wally starts breaking down a little bit and actually starts getting engaged and having a conversation with yeah. this man. But you know what? What I notice about the camera, especially in that that Hollywood, that uh, you know Halloween story on on Montauk, where, where Andre Gregory is talking about Montauk is is a town, a beach town on the the far, far, far eastern shore of Long Island. It's it's as far as you can go on Long Island without going into the ocean, essentially. And he's talking about this this thing that happened where he went out there with six other people mostly men and they went into this room and nobody was telling him what was doing and they were disappearing and 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 you know he was i think he was blindfolded or something and then he goes i mean it's not really the point i mean that's one of the things about my dinner with andre is that the stories you know as long as you get the gist of them they don't matter so yeah, much yeah he's but um but he's he's talking about how he was taken outside and they had dug six graves and they were 8 feet deep and, you know, you're, you're, he's, he's being buried alive and he doesn't know what's happening. And, you know, as he's telling this, this frankly horrifying and terrifying story about what, what really happened to him, um, the camera is, is slowly moving in on his face very, very slowly until it is just a bit too c- close to him. Mm. And it's actually cutting off. You know, all of his face kind of even his uh, from from kind of the bottom of his mouth. And then it's even like you can't really see his forehead in this shot. And, you know, it just it he's he's just looming in the entire frame. And and it's makes him what what this is doing is this is making Andre the only person in the world while he's telling this story. No one else in the restaurant exists at this moment. And I think that that's also indicating to me that. Wally is also locking in on this finally. Well, I would also say that that's because I, I number one, I think we need to make it a little clear. I, I think the context needs to be a little clearer because what what's happening to him is a ritualized performance. Um, you know, a lot of the this talks on the word sacrament is said several times. You know, rituals are very central to this movie and performance, and the three of them are kind of intertwined with each other. This specific thing is they were going to do. You know, so he. He's hanging out with all these hipsters, basically, is what his stories are. And they're doing... Well, I would... I mean... <clears throat> oh, you know, okay. I, uh, I, I disagree uh, uh, with uh, you because I think that w- you kind of have to put this movie in a historical context. And one of the things about My Dinner with Andre is, you know, it was it was shot in, I think, 1980, 1981. It was released in 1981. It takes place in New York. New York is very important to the movie in, yeah. in a way. Um, and, and it's it's a movie about a certain type of... New York artistic intellectual type that that doesn't really exist anymore. And fair, I mean, there, it, this does seem to have a. I, he, they're 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 very similar to Woody Allen characters, for yes. example. Yeah, and, um, and well, I guess Sean, I guess actually, I mean, one of his first acting jobs was in a Woody Allen that's movie. True. I guess I don't mean hipsters as they are today, but they, to a degree, we are dealing with people who are just dealing with art who don't really have any financial problems. I mean, we we need to talk about the. The, the Marxist interpretation of this movie very much because that was what I got very strongly from this. Sure. But, um, you know, he's dealing they're – they're, they're, they're hippies to the degree. I mean I, I used the word happenings earlier. That's essentially what 
you know, they're doing. But um, and I think that Andre mm-hmm. does link that too because at the very end of the movie, he, mm-hmm. he says something about like the '60s was yes. the last the, the last gas before the extinction of the human or something like that. And you're just like, what the hell? Anyway, well, yeah, and I mean, I think one of the big questions of the movie is is what Andre is doing authentic life or is it just you know Burning Man? Um, Andre, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so, th- so this, in- so this experience he goes through, um, is a Halloween ritual that a couple of members of their group have done, and you know they are given the experience of you know being stripped naked, being buried, you know, being you know abluted and washed, and being you know buried alive, and it's this you know horrible experience that he finds very enlightening, you know, and all of that, but. At the same time, even though, yes, he is being, you know, put into a coffin and, you know, lowered into the ground, mm-hmm. he's also not in any real danger because he's not actually going to be killed for, at the end of this. Yes. He's not actually, at, you know, sure, he doesn't know the degree, you know, how long he's going to be buried under. It turns out to, but it turns out to be only a half hour. Well, and that's, you know? and that's what, so I think that, that, that's the thing that always strikes me about my dinner with Andre is, is, is how profoundly sad and lost Andre feels when he's telling these stories. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, there's really... almost a degree to, which maybe he realizes they're a little stupid in the light of day. You know, I don't know if it's stupid. I mean, I think that that you know, obviously, as the movie begins and sets us up to to really identify with Wally as the protagonist of the movie, if it has one, uh, if a movie with two characters can actually have a protagonist, yeah. but. Wally is obviously very unimpressed with these stories and he is obviously not he's not wanting to be there and he doesn't want to be having this dinner he doesn't want to be having this conversation with this man who he used to consider a friend and hasn't seen in 10 years he's he's uncomfortable he doesn't know how to interact or talk with Andre and he's using Andre's willingness and his power in storytelling and all of these bizarre experiences Andre has had. I mean, at one point, Andre actually says, as Wally asks him, like, a fifth question, a fifth follow-up question yeah. about this. You know, and it even gets funny that that Wally is basically, I mean, at a certain point, he's just like, well, tell me more. And, you know, it's like he's not even having a pretense of coming up with a question about what he was just told. And and so, you know, at one point, you know, Andre says, do you really want to hear about all this? And Wally's like, yeah. And so, for me, it's it's... Wally is obviously judging what's happening to Andre. He's worried about Andre. He thinks that Andre has perhaps gone a little insane. And I think this is where the arc of the movie and the structure of the script actually really comes into play because what is essentially happening is that Andre is in a sense not judging Wally, but he is questioning Wally's choices and I don't think that the movie is making any sort of argument that either of them are invalid I just think that Andre has a little bit more financial stability a little bit more financial independence and a little bit more privilege frankly Uh, to go out and do these crazy things in the woods of Poland and whatever um, because he was bored with the theater but see to, to, to at the same time number one to say that you know Andre is more privilege than Wally, yes, is, you know, a fact that we can figure out by looking at their bank accounts, but to a degree which I'm not sure it is at all relevant in the larger scheme of things. I mean, there is a degree well, I to which that... I, the movie, I think, makes them is I, I see, I interpret this movie as, uh, again, Wally is dealing with, I see Wally is dealing with the possibility of a good friend who has gone you know, too crazy for him to, too mentally ill for him to be able to deal with. There is that, you know, bit towards the end of the movie when he says, you know, I basically think of myself as a good person, you know, because I'm just nice to everybody I meet, you know. Yeah. He's been avoiding Andre for years, so he doesn't actually have to have a real conversation because, number one, what if he can't help him? What if he doesn't want to help him? What if he doesn't like this guy anymore, you know? So, you know, if Andre is out of sight, Wally can be perfectly nice to everybody he meets and, you know, not have a problem. Well, that's, you know, and that's why they're playing versions of themselves, because yeah. if you want to really get very sort of um, cliched about it, and I don't think this is a movie that really, tra- you know, it doesn't really track in cliches. I don't think there's a cliche no. in this movie, but, you know, Andre is, is, is the, you know, sclerotic, you know, artistic temperament who lives outside of his own head. He gets very sad sometimes. He gets depressed. He doesn't really know how to interact yeah. with people. And and Wally is more down to earth. Wally actually has more more real concerns, quote unquote. But at the same time, Wally is talking about how he doesn't like to go to parties because he doesn't know what anybody is talking about. You know, and so I think yeah. that 
that there is an element of, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with you that I think that Wally is concerned that Andre is actually mentally ill. I just think that, you know, he's a little concerned because Andre seems lost. But I mean, the you know, both of them are lost, especially Wally at the beginning of the movie. And I think while if there is a character, not that these the characters don't really have arcs so much, although they do have realizations. I mean, you know, to say this has no protagonist, it also has no antagonist other than, you know, the, the waiter. Ex- the, the, that is true. <laughs> uh, no, he is the protagonist. Um the the you know the existential vagaries of life are is the antagonist of this. I sure. mean, this is not really a debate between the two of them, even though they don't agree with each other. They don't see to eye to eye even at the end because I think they are both grappling with the same ideas and are both very concerned. You know, in other words, this is a debate because they're both facing the same enemy and they're trying to help each other out. I mean. The movie goes from Wally and Andre unable to connect to finally, you know, again, it's Wally just kind of being there as, you know, all right, go back, you know, tell me more, do that, and ultimately ends with the two of them actually, you know, Wally saying, you know, well, I completely disagree with that, you know, and giving this impassioned speech, you know, giving down to earth, yeah, which Andre is still able to counter a bit and which, you know, at the end, neither is right and maybe the answer is in between the two of them. If you know, you talk about mindfulness and the concept of Buddhism is meant a lot of times, mentioned a lot of times. There is a degree to which this is trying to figure out what the middle path is. It isn't Andre's, you know, vision of going off, you know, fucking off, going to Poland and, you know, doing these bizarre things. But maybe it's not, you know, Wally's just, I'm going to wake up and, you know, send out some mails and hope I, you know, and write my little play and hope I, you know, find my place in the world you know well see i think you're half there though because what what i think the real point there is is not that andre's path or wally's path are 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 the wrong path i think what 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 the third way is there that the movie kind of hints about and kind of goes around and around about but never actually outright says primarily because i don't think either character really fully has realized it is that it doesn't really matter what you're doing as long as you're doing it mindfully. Well, yeah, that is... You the, know, if, um, if Wally likes waking up in the morning, having a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. reading the newspaper with his girlfriend, and Andre likes going off to Tibet or going off to Poland and doing bizarre things in the woods and doing these real-life theatrical performances, yeah, yeah. they're both okay. They both can get something out of it. It's just you need to make sure that you're... And that's why I think Andre says that, yeah. where he says, you know, you always need to make sure that you're not asleep. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the there's... Point. You know, a lot of Andre, you know, Andre basically, you know, they talk about Everest becomes the symbol for, you know, the place you need to go or whatever you need to do. But, you know, Andre is saying, you know, you need to go out to Everest because, you know, this world is phony. And, you know, Wally says at one point, but New York is real. People live there. I live there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the store. We can go to the cigar store next door. That's just as real as Everest, you know, you know, and he does have the point of why can we only get enlightenment in one as for the other also i mean in its way wally's is the more egalitarian because very few people can go to everest but you know anybody who's in the area can go down to the local cigar store or frankly be wherever they are you know this you know you and i are talking right now you know in your apartment in you know a room and you know the, everything that's happening to us is real right now Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, and that kind of links back to to something else the movie talks about is that we're always performing, you know, and and, but the movie itself is a performance, given that it's not an improvised conversation, given that it's not an actual conversation. This conversation is a performance. I mean, we are very. Yeah. Again, we are we are improvising. We didn't really make any notes together on that. Yeah. But this I mean, this is performing. I mean, this we are we are having a conversation. I mean, if we had watched this movie ourselves and if we had just kind of had a conversation about it as we're wont to do, uh, you know, not off, not on the mics. Yeah. We would have had a very different conversation, I think. And it would have, it would not have been this deliberate. It would not have been this sort of, um, um, focused, I think. And it probably would have not been this, this interesting, you know, frankly, I think <laughs> well, for, well, for, somebody's very presumptuous, but well, no, yeah. I know, I know what you mean. No, hey, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not going to pretend that people don't like our podcast. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, do you know what I mean though? I mean, this yeah. is, you know, we are having a movie, we're, we're having a discussion about I, a movie that is primarily about the ways in which people are always performing, don't do things mindfully, do things on rote, do things automatically. 
And at the same time, don't know how to engage or interact or, or connect with other people in a real fundamental way on an emotional level. And when you have a real moment with someone, they shut down, they get uncomfortable, they make a joke. And what, you know, what yeah. are we doing? You know, we're having a conversation well, about this movie with all of these ideas and themes and it's a performance. This is a performative conversation. I mean, I have to be honest. Yes, I, I think I, I will assume you felt the same, you know, felt some echoes of you and me in this movie and that, you know, yes, these very two, you know, the two of them, yes, they may not have had this exact conversation scripted like this before they did this movie. This movie may have been constructed of hundreds of takes of, you know, we're going to say this one, you know, three line, you know, bit over and over again, but. Oh, and it absolutely was. Uh, yeah. you know, of, of course. Um. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, these are two – it is very clear that these are two people who have a very cerebral friendship in their ways. I mean, to a degree, I know you and I find this podcast to be a very – I mean, if you want to talk sacramental, I would consider this pod – you know, our podcast to be one of the sacraments of our friendship. Yeah. And um, – but which I feel doesn't – you know, then, then my question is, is that – this is the fact that, you know, this is to a degree a performance, make it inauthentic, is, you know, at the same time, I mean, I would say that the podcast means something more to you and me than it does to you, the listener at home. I mean, you know, given given that... You maybe know, it does, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Well, well, I mean, but, given, given that, you know, this is, uh, you know, as, as, as I said, Mina, my, my half of the conversation is yours as well, is about... You know, to me, we are using our interactions and whatever show or movie we're talking about, you know, as a whole, and somebody else is going to interact with that in a different way than, sure. you know, you or I, which is no less authentic of a reaction to take. If someone wants to take it because, oh, well, let's see, you know, they don't care what Eric and Richard are talking about so much as it is, you know, we're just going to hang out for an hour, you know. That's no less authentic from someone who's trying to get our thoughts, you know, on the mise-en-scene of this movie. Sure, sure. But I think that, that you know, kind of to, to bring it back to the idea of performance and to bring it back to the idea of the sort of theatrical nature of this. I mean, you know, in a sense, everything you just said is true and I don't disagree with it. But what what's and I think you're right, I think to raise the question of, of is a performance inauthentic? And I think that's kind of at the core of the movie. You know, it's. It's what my dinner with Andre is 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 about, in as much as it's about anything. Well, it, it's that you know the the quote from the Bergman film that you know while while he says that he heard that you know sent Andre si- you know sobbing. Uh, I could live in my art, but not in my life. And I think that that's what I mean. That's that's a really interesting way to to frame the movie because, of course, that is what essentially Louis yeah. Louis Ma, uh, not Louis Mal uh, Andre Gregory's life is about. You know, in this movie, you know, that's what he's doing. That's what he's describing in the first half of the movie. This is a man who has a wife, has children that he yeah. loves. You know, had a you know had a had a you know a successful and fulfilling i would assume yeah career as a theatrical director in you, new to, york city to the degree where i you know if he even wanted to be a hack for a while he could probably do it you sure know? if he wanted to just teach a clash at tish once a week once a week he would be able to do it yeah but but uh it, it is in the case of of at least andre gregory that he realizes that that his entire life is a performance he's someone who is going out and doing these very elaborate theatrical performances in the real world because he can't he can't connect and he can't be mindful in a real way in his own life which i think is the sadness of the character it reminds me what i'm thinking of is uh peter sellers actually who you know character actor very into method and all of those stuff and you know he would often say you know i have no personal life you know i i am really old you know my characters and that is somebody you know one of the first things, you know, Andre is talking about is, all right, so, there, so there's, you know, the acting schools which you become your character, you know, whatever, yeah. you know. And he talks about, you know, we're going to do Chekhov, you know, we're going to have our characters in a day that's not covered. And what would you say? I mean, that's a very – that's improv 101 essentially. Um, he's talking about improving as Andre Gregory, me improving as Richard Goodness, you improving as Eric Brazier. Um, and – Almost, you know, and he says this is a way of bringing out your more authentic self because, you know, but the sad, but yeah, there is a sadness in that he's only able to connect to what Andre Gregory would do when he's playing the character of Andre Gregory. And so it is a very 
inauthentic way in its own way. I mean, well, it isn't. It isn't because I think, you know, again, the turning point of the movie is about halfway through when, you know, after Andre has told all these really elaborate stories and, yeah. and he's starting to talk about what the point of all those stories is and what the point of this journey of his, what really was is that he thinks that we go through the world asleep. He thinks we go through the world, not really yeah. seeing what's going on. And that's when Wally starts getting engaged in the conversation and actually talking and not just asking him very banal questions. And that's really, I think, at the core of the movie is that Andre thinks that he can't have an authentic experience in the real world unless it is also having some sort of performative aspect to it. And Wally doesn't think that. I I don't know which of them is right. I don't think the movie is really – it's not important for the movie to come down on the side of one of them is right and one of them is wrong. No, it's a dialectic. Right, and I think both of them could be could be correct, and I think both of them are correct in a certain sense. Yeah, in their own ways, they you know both are certainly. Um, one of the things that really struck me—I mean, I said earlier that you know, yes, Andre is more privileged than Wally is, but to a degree, it's irrelevant. I mean, one of the very first things in in Wally's opening monologue is how he says, you know, he grew up in a very in a rich family, and you know. I was taking while, tax, I was taking taxi cabs everywhere, and it's not while, while Sean's father was the editor of the New Yorker, so yeah, so he didn't really need for anything. And I mean, the you know, it's not incidental that one of the final things he does is you know, I allowed myself the luxury of a taxi cab. I mean, he at the end you know grasps that privilege again. These are two people who are so high. I mean, the, there is almost a madman quality to this, to where it's people who have everything and realize that, you know, once you get to a certain level of the Maslow pyramid, you know, there's still going to be a higher level. You know, these people are able to, you know, all of their low level needs are fulfilled and likely will be fulfilled, you know, fairly easily. I mean, and they are using the, you know, they are frank. I think it's not insignificant that Wally uses Debbie in order to be able to have his existential crisis. I mean, I wouldn't, He's – you know, he. I, I almost laughed when he says, you know, I wanted to be a playwright, you know, but I couldn't make it as a playwright. You know, I, I, I completely agree with that. I can't make it as a podcast or a video game writer, you know. So he says, so I got a job. And, you know, in my mind, I think, well, I sling coffee. That's my day job. I became an actor, which is another ridiculous dream job. Yeah. That, you know, you're not going to actually make money. And then he says, you know, my girlfriend had to work three shifts as a waitress in order to pay our bills. I mean – it's not even like, you know, number one, you know, she's working to support him and she's not, it's not even like she's working full time. I mean, Wally, get a fucking job is part of what <laughs> I, you know, what was a lot of what I thought for this. And, you know, we're told that Andre, you know, has some family money and that's, you know, it's implied how he's able to gallivant, you know, and, you know, we don't really know Debbie and Chiquita from this movie. We see, you know, we hear their husbands or, you know, boyfriends, you know, assessments of them we don't know i mean we don't know if debbie's job is you know she works at you know an upscale restaurant she loves her co-workers you know the tips are really nice it's only three shifts a week and you know they they're living fine or if she's working at a shitty diner where all the customers are rude and you know the right you know, she's you know we don't know if chiquita just you know enjoys having you know her kids around and you know she's having with her own family and when her husband's in town that's great but you maybe know, she's a doctor we have no the, idea the, the, you know that's the other yeah that's the other thing or we don't know if she just you know feels like a, feels abandoned and you know what is going on you know right we don't know to which degree these two women have become fulfilled in their own way and their husbands don't really or you know they 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 edge upon it you know when he's talking about this photograph of his wife that he saw and you know he thought it was so beautiful and yeah. sexy and you know now he realizes she's sad and lost and confused you know i think there are these moments where they they come close to realizing that maybe they're they're the the women that they love are going through their own version of what they're going through i mean he, there there is an indulgence to it and there is a very yeah. male male privilege sort of indulgence to of it that I, that I think is in the undercurrent of the movie and we can see that even clearly now, you know, 35 of years course. later. And I, 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 w- what that makes me realize is, you know, Debbie and, and Chiquita, in as much as they exist in the movie, really are stand-ins. They're sort of synecdoches for yeah. uh, uh, two types of relationships. And it doesn't really matter yeah. who they are as people. Because if if the movie is essentially, if this conversation is essentially Andre and Wally, you know, talking about the ways in which they're interacting with the world and viewing the world... Uh, 
in in as much as this conversation is real and while this conversation yeah. is happening Debbie and Chiquita aren't real. No, it's to it's you know th- this is almost a Socratic dialogue in its way. You know you don't really worry about the character of Plato, for example, so much as you do the viewpoint that he kind of represents. Um, a- absolutely, yeah. And and you know the other the other thing that this really makes me me uh, uh, realize and want to talk about is kind of placing this movie in a very particular historical place and time. Because you're looking at this movie from 35 years later, you know this. These are these are men that were, you know, Wally. I think was supposed to be 36, and Andre's yeah. a little bit older than that, maybe in his early 40s, uh, maybe 45. And so they were kind of born in that sort of you know 30s, 40s time frame. They were in college in the 60s because, of course, they both went to college. Yeah. And, you know, so Andre's a little bit older, so perhaps he was involved in, in you know, hippie movements or free love or whatever. And, and Wally's a little bit younger, so maybe he missed that. And, yeah, I can't tell if Andre's child, you know, youth was ridiculously wild and chaotic or if it was extremely conservative and straight-laced. Like, you don't have this kind of an existential crisis unless it was one or the other, you know? But I think it does really, yeah, I think that's true, but I also think it really does, uh, uh, this movie does a really good job of laying waste to the idea that uh, the sort of existential angst or crisis or whatever is going on nowadays with, with people, especially young people, millennials, uh, to use the term, yeah. is not new. And if you look yeah. at this movie as 1981, if you sort of say, you, you link back everything that's wrong in America now to the rise of Reagan and the rise of, of, of Randianism and the rise of, of you know movement conservatism and all these kind of things, that here are two people that are talking in 1981, you know, before that really became ascendant. Mm. I mean, politics doesn't exist for them. They don't talk about politics yeah. at all, which I find really interesting. Which is part of the critique. I mean, they, there is a degree to which they, you know, and I, you know, I have to say, you know, power is very fluid. You know, power is not in any one class. But I mean, they are, you know, two again, two privileged people who can, you know, get get this movie made and you know get it to win awards, you know, and all of that, and you know, can fuck off and go to castles, you know, for weeks at a time. And yet, they are still dealing with their, you know, pro, you know, again, problems of, you know, number one. I mean, Wally is dealing with how do I make rent, you know, well, even though I don't agree with his solution for it. And let's not forget too that that they're living in a New York that is at its nadir. Yeah, I mean, it's this true. this is New York at its worst. I mean, this is New York at its most dangerous, at its most dirty, at its most broken. There, I mean, there you was, see the subway. You see, yeah, you see the subway. It's covered in graffiti. It's dirty. The streets are almost empty. I mean, the very beginning of the movie, Wally is walking through Soho, and there's no one around. And you know, for people that don't know anything about New York, Soho yeah. is a very like it. It 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 was an industrial area. Then in the seventies, artists started to move into these lofts, and now it's which is you know just where a, he's in. Really? Yeah, that's probably where he lived. And and now it's just this Tony shopping district where apartments go for $5,000 a month. And, what, you know, I think that then that's kind of the arc of where New York has gone in the past 35 years. But what, what you really have to remember about this is they are living in a New York that is falling apart. And, and the fact of the matter is, Wally yeah. can afford to live in Soho and he can afford to not work. And, you know, you can't do that anymore. No, that is true. He's not, you know, yeah. And not only that, but, you know, in terms of court, sort of where the American culture was, I think, in the 70s, I mean, I think it's not, we haven't really talked a lot about. Um, kind of the end of the movie where they start talking about the scientific method and things like that, which I find also very interesting. But if you look at this context, if you look at this dialogue that they're having in a very particular historical place and time, you know, they are eating uh, in a restaurant that was pretty famous called Cafe de Artis. And it was, I think, on West 67th Street or something right by Lincoln Center. And so it got a reputation for having a lot of performers and artists coming by and eating there. And you know, so they're they're kind of in an old New York sort of place at the same time that you're you're looking at Andre talking about all of these really elaborate things he's doing, perhaps to get back some of the feeling of the 60s that he seems yeah. to appreciate so much. There is kind of a, a an old hippie sort of vibe about him in a certain sense. Yeah, it's not incidental that I said happenings, you know, as a description for them. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if you look back in American history and you look back at American culture sort of in the 70s, you know, of course, the 70s were, you know, very gray. You know, they were there were economic shocks. People were losing their jobs. It was recession. You know, uh, the Vietnam War basically destroyed, uh, you know, people. Uh, it was just not a good time in America. And 
I, I think that this movie comes at a very interesting place in time because it does it is shot at the beginning of this sort of ascendance of movement conservative and this ascendance of, uh, you know, financial, um, uh, financial firms becoming a larger and larger share of GDP and just sort of like the, the ascendance of the idea that everybody, I mean, while even talks about that now about how sort of people are starting to talk about their careers and they need to build a career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was not necessarily something people were talking about in 1966. No, I mean, we, 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 you know, nowadays we'd say our brand, but I mean, it's, that was one of the, you know, the, the things this movie made me think about. Are we dealing with, you know, is this just the same problem clicks around or are we just dealing with, you know, the same problems 30 years and worse? I'm not – I get the sense that, you know, one of the implicit things of the movie is that they're both wrong and this is just how – there will always be two people talking about their dissatisfactions in this way. Well, you you said very early on in the conversation that, that you wanted to talk about sort of a Marxist interpretation of this well, movie and – what what I find interesting about what you just said is there's there is an there is an undercurrent to the movie that I don't even know if they really understand it, but but you know this is what living in capitalism is. Yeah, you know. And, oh and, yeah, I mean, uh, well, the thing where Wally says, you know, all I want to do is have my little cup of cold coffee, you know, and I don't want it to have a cockroach, and I want to you know hang out with my girlfriend and write my little plays, and you know, have a little food and live in my and. What he describes, I mean, that's not that different from, you know, what my personal life is. You know, Mm -hmm. I I tend to live very small and internal, and I like that, you know, when I have my own little personal rituals. And, you know, he is dealing with money troubles. And in a society where there would be a guaranteed living wage for everybody, he would be able to sit in his apartment and have his little cup of coffee. I mean, I think one of the big problems with figuring out how to give everyone a living wage is no one agrees on where the bottom is going to be but i don't think that's the biggest problem with it (laughs) well and you know then we got to figure out you know well where do we get the money from and how do we convince the people that you know you know well races you don't like still deserve that minimum that living wage too you know i mean Um, we we could have a whole poly we could have a whole conversation about you know modern day american politics and sort of the historical you know underpinnings of that but but anyway they they benefit from capitalism as much as they complain about it as as much as they are and and i I guess complain is too judgmental to term even as they are suffering from some of its effects as well well yeah exactly and i think that that's really what what uh, the insidious nature of the capitalist system is is that it, it gives you just enough to feel comfortable while while making you feel like you can't really criticize or, or, or break it. And you know, th- this, again, we're being a little simplistic here well. in terms of having a conversation. But you know, this is not a, a dissertation. Um, but you know, I- if you look again and sort of link it to the '60s and the '60s being the last real great era of, uh, I-, I think, essentially mass protests about national you know, uh, uh, problems, the Vietnam War specifically, and just how that collapsed and how the 70s, again, were this time of, of mass disenchantment with politics. And, you know, think you come out of the 60s with, with Nixon, you come out of the 60s with Ford resigning, you come, out of the, you come out of the 70s now, and you have Reagan. I think it's, I always, by the way, just on a side note, think it's hilarious when you talk about how bad the 70s were, because everything you list out has, you know, a, a very specific analog in today. Like, I always think it's funny. Like, you say, well, there was a recession. Yeah, we just had one of those, you know. It was hard to go to work. Yeah, we just had one of those, you know. Industry was collapsing. Yeah. You know? Oh, I'm not saying now is no, I, I, I No, I just think it's funny to connect the two times together. Yes. I mean, they have very different causes, but... You know, one of the digressions in this, you know, related to this that really struck me was they talk briefly about, you know, should we write happy plays that, you know, is that putting people to sleep if we're, you know, yeah. writing this thing where everything works out in the end? Or, you know, if we're writing negative stuff that's pointing out everything bad, is that just doing the same? Because it's underlining this worldview that everything is bad and cannot be changed. I mean, I would say that both of them, you know, even as they you know, maybe mired in their own problems and their own, you know, classes and all of that. They do genuinely wish, you know, they see a power in theater. This is, they are not art for art's sake. They see art as a method for, you know, as a powerful method in order to convey some kind of message. Yes. And, you know, a lot of Andre's problem is he can't figure out what the fuck the message is anymore. You know, he has gotten to, they've kind of gotten to that artistic point where, they don't know what to say and they don't want to just say anything for its own sake. 
Well, and I think that that that's really true, and I think that you really see that at the end of the movie when when Wally and Andre start talking about the scientific method, and mm. because you know, like to a very real degree, I think it, you know where the movie goes in terms of presenting Andre's worldview or Andre's beliefs is that you know again his sort of focus on the 60s is the real last bat gasp of the human before he was extinguished is is really true and profound and meaningful because you know he he thinks that i don't know if that was a, i don't know if he thinks that was a dead end i don't know if he thinks that that was perhaps not the way to go he certainly doesn't seem to think that the scientific method is relevant anymore and so he's I looking for another way or another way to understand the world or sort of get people out of the the you know, sort of to understand everything that's going on around them. And I don't think that he knows what that is. And I think he's, that's why he's going off to Poland. I think he's one of those people who thinks of science as limiting. I mean, there's the, you know, murdering to dissect. There is, you know, I, don't oh, know. Once I, you... I, I just I don't think he thinks it's relevant. OK, fair. But maybe, you know, maybe relevant because it can't produce meaning because it destroys its own meaning. But I mean, no, I just certainly... I, I think that he he thinks that that science is important for things that science is good at, mm. and that for those real questions about what it is to be human, what it means so to relate to people. So we separate science and art. You know, if we're going to cure cancer, you know, that's the realm of science. But you know, if we're dealing with you know day to day, you know, that's art, and never the twain shall meet. And you know, maybe. See, because, you know, I don't know that I really have a takeaway there. I just think yeah. that, that you know, I mean, I personally think that's a I think science and art, you know, are in extreme. Number one, I don't consider science and art opposites. You know, I don't think they're the only binary terms, but they are no matter what they are. They are inextricably linked, I would say, in my worldview. I don't know that I agree with that, but I think, you know, because I, I, I don't I don't know that that if you really boil down the scientific method to, you know, hypothesis, testing, verifying, you know, all those things. Yeah, that's not what art does. I, I don't think that they really have much to do with each other. And I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think that, you know, how I really think about that is. We could have a very long conversation. About well, we could, but there's there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful images of space yeah. and, and and coming out of of NASA, for example, and that is all science. You know, that is all really founded yeah. on uh, the scientific method and math, and you know, all of these very concrete things that are really up for interpretation. But what we as humans experience and feel and and get out of those images is outside of that realm. Yes. I think that it what we forget is that science is not a it's not an end, it's a means to an end. Yes, I mean there's a uh Sartre bit I remember an essay where he basically talks about a la you know landscapes don't exist. These are just, you know, rocks and trees existing in space. It is the human eye and the human brain which collate that into a coherent image, you know. And so yes, you know, we see a picture of a nebula. Well, you know, but, but, you know, on the one hand, I don't think you're necessarily going to have science separating and say, well, this is just gases, you know, and that's it. And art saying this is just a beautiful phenomenon, you know. Art will find beauty in, you know, in the, in the underlying, you know, scientific structure. And, you know, science will find meaning in the fact that it is giving this light and this pleasing pattern, you know. And Yeah, but I, but I think that, 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 you know, where that really comes down you know, to for me is – uh, one of the things that they keep talking about Andre and Wally in, in the conversation is how everyone is sleeping and everyone is yeah. doing things by habit. No one's really thinking about what they're doing. No one's really engaging with other people on a real way. And it, it's one of those cases where I think that where, where science falls down is thinking that we can explain everything that people are mm. doing in scientific terms but at the same time, you know, one of the things that I've become really, really cognizant of and fascinated by in the past couple of years is this idea about how the brain works and how humans, maybe they don't have free will. I mean, you know, there are real fundamental questions about our own biology that do affect how we do things, you know. And so, you know, and to Andre's point again in the movie about how if you're just eating and shoving food into yeah. your mouth mindlessly because of habit and you're not really hungry – well, okay, but at the same time, there is a biological imperative to consume food to survive. Yes. And so, I, you know, I don't know what and the answer is, but I think it's it's an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, I think that was an interesting story, was a good juxtaposition in his talking about the monk who started from, you know, drinking, right, you know, a tiny bowl of rice to eating everything on the table, you know, when he went to America. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, by a lot, you know, we... You, 
people have the imperative to eat and eat and eat, you know, maybe they will stop before they get sick, but, you know, because historically, you know, food is not scarce. We can't always go to the supermarket. You know, if we're talking about a hunter-gatherer society, we're not going to go to the supermarket. You know, we're into the fridge, and so, you know, food is scarce, and so, you know, when you have a little food, you'll eat as much of it as you can, you know, and, you know, it, it Yes, we can point to a, you know... Well, there's also a privilege involved in that, though, because... Of course, that's true, because, you know... And Andre even says as much, where he says, well, you're eating it because you you can. Yeah. You know, which... You know, there are plenty of people in the world today who don't have the luxury of going to the super shore. Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, what it's really coming down to is these are two characters, and I think, you know, this conversation is really about the the gaps in knowledge, and and... We just have to strive to always be present in the moment, to be mindful, to be kind to other people, you know, and, and it's not always easy. People are going to fall down. You know, you're going to have moments where you get angry or you assume the worst of someone or you're not really thinking about what you're doing. And yes, you can go too far in the other direction where Wally talks about that horrible two hour meal he had at the Buddhist temple where they have to, you know, yeah. think about every bite that they're eating. But there is a middle ground there. And I, 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 the other thing I always take away from this and I think that I take away from this conversation is I think Wally feels attacked by Andre's insistence that he's living the wrong life and that just wanting a cup of coffee in the morning yeah. and reading the Times is wrong. And I, I 100% mindfulness at all times of day is just not possible, no. number one. And I also would not want to criticize people for not being mindful sometimes because I do think it's important to to have moments where you can just be mindless. I mean, biologically, there are entire regions of the brain which are dealt, you know, which deal with forgetting to the effect of, I mean, I'm staring at your bookshelf and, you know, I've, I've stared away. I've forgotten, you know, most of the titles right now except for, you've yeah. forgotten what books are. Yeah. What 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 are, um, <laughs> but you know to to the degree of you know you you know being mindful of everything around you at every single moment is too intensive stimuli. You wouldn't you know the, the you would be unable to act, and so you know there are filtering systems in the brain which yeah. you know work towards you know helping you focus on well what's actually important you know what do i need to and again that's on a survival level that's on a you know dealing with mo- you know dealing with walking down the street without going insane per, per, well that's per- per, 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 particularly if you're in the middle of new york city no matter well, what era yeah i mean i was about to say that and then the other thing too is that you have to remember is that you know uh, there's a lot of great stuff coming out now about human the, the human brain is really a pattern recognition machine yeah and I need th- to give you some Doug Hoff's data to read, you know, oh, because right. this is like everything that he writes about. But one of the fast, one of the fascinating things that I learned just in the past year or two is there actually is a, a, a brain disorder, and I don't know what causes it, and I don't know what it's called, but it essentially breaks the brain's ability to recognize patterns, and so. When people that have this disorder or have this disease or whatever you want to call it or have maybe they just have a different understanding of how the world yeah. works. You know, I don't want to, you know, let, let's not other it. Um, you know, essentially every time they see a chair, they have mm-hmm. to think about like, you know, just think about the fact that if every time you saw a chair, you had to think about what it was. Yeah. And, uh, you well, know, we, I mean, we, we, you know, language is categorical. So, I mean, like. You know, for example, you and I both are both sitting in chairs. We're sitting on very different looking chairs. You know, they have different ba- – you know, they, they, these chairs don't look at all like each other. And, you know, for our audiences at home has no way of knowing this. But they they don't have any elements in common other than – but we both recognize them as chairs. Well, they know? have some elements in common. But, you know, but for the most – you know, in terms of construction, in terms of design, you know, and, you know, so somebody who did not have the pattern recognition would, would see these as two – completely separate objects for example i'm pointing out a lamp in your chair yeah yeah and i think also essentially too i mean you you, you know the other the other side of that is that that's basically what babies have to learn how to do yeah and that's and that's one of the things about you know that's one of the reasons why for example you know toddlers love watching the same movie every single day over and Mm. over and over and over again because they're always noticing new things and their brains are just firing these neurons all the time and turning on new parts of the brain and and, And and, even you know wearing certain grooves down that you know to because, you know, frankly, practicing a word, you know, is how you're going to learn to say it. Yeah. So hearing it over and over again is just kind of grooving in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, the that's why the end of the movie, I think, is so beautiful as well, because I think that, that you know, they've come around to their, their own yeah. viewpoints to some degree. And 
you know, Wally in that cab kind of saying, oh, that's, that's where I bought a suit. That's yeah. where, I, you know, he is being mindful. And I think that's kind of what the, the, the point of that ending scene is. Yeah. I don't know if Wally and Andre are going to have more conversations after this. Like, I think, you know, Wally has less of a reason to be avoidant of him because they, you know, the two of them. I mean, I think it's very, no matter what their views are, what Andre's and what Wally's views are, they both agree in the primacy and the importance of human connection. And yeah. while they start off not connected, they do manage to, you know, be be able to be in sync with each other. And yeah. more importantly, I mean, the very last line of the movie is, you know, I went back and I told Debbie everything about, you know, my dinner with Andre. And he has, you know, whatever, you know, and, and frankly, that's part of why I would think that, you know, Debbie isn't in, you know, a shitty place where, you know, she, yeah. you know, like, you know, she's fine with you because, you know, he has human connection with her too. Yeah. It's not, you know, as if the movie ended with, you know, these two men are alone in the world except for each other. No, they, you know, Andre will told, we're told several times, you know, adores his wife and kids. And, you know, even though he's away at times, you know, we assume that, you know, the, the family life is pretty good when he's around and, you know, he is able to have connection with them. And I guess the movie makes it clear that human connection may be difficult, may need grappling with worldviews till you get to a point, but can happen. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it's a very optimistic movie in that way to me. Well, it is. And I think it's it's a profoundly human movie and it's it's a profoundly moving movie as well. I mean, it, it there are so many ways that it shouldn't work. And, you know, if yeah. you just, you know, when we started out having this conversation, you know, d- describing the movie to someone who hasn't seen it, it, it sounds like it should be unwatchable. Yeah. And, and it's not. I mean, it is such a movie that I lock in every time I watch it. And it, it seems like it takes 20 minutes to go by. I mean, it's it's. Yeah. I said it's one of those movies that felt like it was 10 minutes and like seven hours you know at the same time not in a bad way but again it it was a very overwhelming and enveloping movie as i said i felt it was lulling i wasn't exactly falling asleep but it's to the degree again you're dealing with two people who are really good storytellers and they're telling you a story and so you're just kind of half listening half imagining and half just kind of going with it yeah yeah I'm glad you got something out of it. Thank I, you. I, I think it's a really important movie. If anybody who ha- is listening who has not watched it, uh, you should go out and watch it. Um, it wasn't very, like, I was worried it would be very movie-y or filmy. I was also worried it would be very theater-y, which are two worlds we'll have that— have a conversation about what you mean by that sometimes, because I think you do have very weird ideas about what movies are and what well, theater is. But anyway. Well, you know— <laughs> Uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of pretentious, you know, le film artistique, you know, you go to, you know, when, when, when they're on TV and they go to see a snooty French movie. Like, I don't like that kind of movie. I don't like, like, very... Well, we're going to have to watch the, uh, the Wages of Fear then because, okay. <laughs> I don't know, I, 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 I very much... Or th- I guess when I say film and theater for people who are more upper class than me, what they would, because, you know... Andre is more upper class than I am. I am theater as far as he may, you know, the theater of the the rich and the elite as opposed to the theater of the common man, if you want to say. Yeah, but movies aren't an art form of the rich and elite. You go to, but I mean, you. so you, we're at the Cannes Film Festival. We're not with the rich and elite. Yes, but it's not an art form of the rich and the elite. Anyway, that's, that's a side issue, but it, it, it's a very different sort of mm. thing and I'll just leave yeah. it at that. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think that, that this is a movie that, while it is grounded in a very theatrical yeah. uh, uh, understanding of, of 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 filmmaking, it's also not. And it is a movie that is vibrant. It's a movie that is very, very lived in. It's obviously very deliberately shot and constructed, but it feels very human and very organic. Yeah. And- I mean, there were a lot of almost like... There were scenes that almost ended with like punchlines, you know, like I remember one like there's It's a funny movie. I mean, the sound I thought was incredible, you know, because you have, you know, there's some parts where there's no background whatsoever, some parts where you hear people laughing. There were some bits like at one point he says, you know, yeah, you know, just getting away from all that noise and you know, then you know, then of course you hear a siren outside. It was or, a car horn. I I wrote it down. I was actually going to say that. Yeah, it's hilarious. Um, yeah. There are one other part, you know, when he says, you know, oh, and then you know, if you're just sleeping through life, you're a robot, and then they show out of focus in the mirror, the waiter lumbering around. Like, there's a lot of seeds like that. That again, like. I'm sure after the third and fourth time you see it, like you pick up even more of those. Yeah. Like those were just the obvious ones to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, if you have any thoughts on our conversation about my dinner with Andre, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. Our podcast featuring our conversation about my dinner with Andre. (laughs) Our social media username where you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is truckaboutshow. And please leave us an iTunes review like Jarek did in the Canadian's iTunes store. I had to look it up. I had to hack it. Uh, (laughs) I love Trek a boat, eh? (laughs) Uh, So Jarek says, Eric and Richard delve into the movie world, their analysis and discussion of a number of well-known and entertaining or not movies. I'm curious to see which ones he or she Mm. did not think were entertaining. But anyway. Well, maybe for the future, you know, we could watch like, I don't know, what's a bad movie? Uh, troll too. Uh, if you enjoy their chats about Star Trek, then this is more of the same. And with more movies to come, this show is great to listen to at work or relaxing at home. Well, Jarek was the name. Yes. We don't know if you're at work or relaxing at home, but we hope you're having a good time either way. We are. And if you would like to give us a positive iTunes review like Jarek did, please feel free to do that. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. Well, we are continuing with this season of Trek About Presents. Uh, now that we did our little one-off, we're going to go into the first three Kevin Smith movies. So next week is going to be Clerks. Ah! Which, now, you see, this is one of those movies that I've seen a billion times. It is very important to me. Well, there you go. So we're going to have a good conversation about that. It's also a very, very talky movie. So yeah. it should be interesting. as an interesting juxtaposition to my dinner with Andre. Mm. But we have another podcast. Mm. Check out Truck About. We are in the fourth season of Deep Space Nine right now, and you can find that at truckaboutshow.com. And if you do not give us $5 a month or more on our Patreon, and yes, we do have a Patreon, you can show your support and love of the show by giving us hard-earned money. See, when you're listening to this at work, the money that you used during that listen should go to us. Some of it, not all of it. We would like you to continue to pay your electric bill and internet so you can listen to the But once you like pay off, you pay yourself first and then pay us. There you go. It's a good way to look at it. Uh, this month, we uh, every month we do a, a special episode just for our patrons on a variety of Star Trek related topics. And this month we are talking about uh, what Richard and I would like from the Star Trek 2017 series that is being helmed by Brian Fuller. It's a good, it was a good conversation. We had a lot of really interesting ideas about what we'd like to see. And uh, if you would like to hear that and also the other three patron specials as well that we have done so far, uh, please just go over to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and uh, donate us a little money. Thank you very much. So we will see you next week on Truckabout Presents for Clerks.